We will have witnessing opportunities. And I want us to look at the witnessing opportunities that um, um, we have. If you truly belong to Christ, you will have opportunities for witnessing for Him. Do you want to have opportunities to witness for Jesus? Give yourself to Him. Belong to Him. When we truly belong to Him, He will give us opportunities to witness. Let's bow our heads as we look at how to utilize God-given witnessing opportunities. Father in heaven, I pray that you'll bless us as we seek to understand more of the opportunities and how to take advantage of them. I pray that the Holy Spirit may be here. Protect my mouth from my thoughts. And may it be just your thoughts that get expressed. Protect the ears that they hear only your words. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer. In Christ's name, amen. Now, what are witnessing opportunities? She goes on, you will be invited to attend places of amusement, and then it will be that you will have an opportunity to testify to your Lord. What are places of amusement? Sure. Long list. Dancing, drinking, gambling, card playing, billiards, pool, theater, movies, Hollywood, amusement parks, bowling alleys, parties of pleasure. We could go on and on. Easy to come up with places of amusement. And you will be invited to one or more places of amusement. But each invitation to attend places of amusement is an opportunity for witnessing. How can we take advantage of these opportunities? If you are true to Christ then, you will not try to form excuses for your non-attendance, but will plainly and modestly declare that you are a child of God and your principles would not allow you to be in a place even for one occasion where you could not invite the presence of your Lord. This was written particularly for young people in a college situation. Friends invite them to this party or that. We cannot be witnesses for Christ without His Holy Spirit to work upon our hearts. We are to receive the Holy Spirit, and through its agency, the sinner will be impressed with the fact that in Jesus there are to be found joy superior to those of earth. And so we're invited to attend a place that Jesus wouldn't be. But in thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Can there be something that's a, any joy without Jesus? No. And as you size up the, the invitation, you can know whether Christ is going to be there or not. And if he's not going to be there, then you have an opportunity to witness for Christ. And as you speak for Christ in your response, 
as you do that. Even if you can't tell, the Holy Spirit uses that as an opportunity to implant the seed that in time will be harvested for the kingdom. Wherever in reforms we can connect with others in the countries to which we go, it will be advisable to do so. So if you're doing outreach, try to uh, connect with others who may be perhaps uh, not Seventh-day Adventist, but who are, believe in the same reform you do. I, uh, I remember when we moved to Wichita, Kansas, and part of the Three Angels' message is worship the Creator. Creation science is part of our last message of warning to the world. And I'd listened to a group giving the creation uh, message from the Institute of Creation Research in San Diego. And somebody had questioned them about Seventh-day Adventists, though they weren't Seventh-day Adventists. They spe spoke very highly of Seventh-day Adventists, very highly of Loma Linda. And, um, and I'd listened to this. And uh, I thought, you know, we should get... I didn't know anybody in the denomination that was as good at presenting creation. We should get them, help sponsor them to come to the Wichita community. It was Dwayne Gish that we, um, we contacted. And I talked to him, and he was happy to come. And I asked him if there were any, any uh, people he had any contacts in Wichita. And he gave me a list of 14 and so I contacted these ministers, and they gave me four more, and we had them come to our home for a creation breakfast. Eighteen ministers in an Adventist home. Um, and who, like an Adventist, can create an Eden breakfast? And uh, so after they had enjoyed the uh, the the time of uh, uh, breakfast, we, uh, we got a committee appointed. They asked me to be chair of it. And I discovered the incredible power and influence that 18 ministers of large churches have in a community. They had media. They had all kinds of, of, uh, of access, television, men, um, uh, radio, TV. Um, and so we had, actually, we had over 2,000 people that came to the, uh, the seminar, but um, out of that, I became friends with many ministers there. They didn't know I was a Seventh-day Adventist at the time, and I will uh, tell you a story of a minister that we became friends with in our efforts working with reforms with other people. Um, we worked with the Christian Legal Society on separation of church and state. I gave a talk to the lawyers of the Christian Legal Society, Lessons from Waco, in which actually I gave a study on the judgment and passed out. I didn't tell them where it was from. I passed out the investigative judgment uh, chapter in Great Controversy, uh, redid it uh, um, with uh, headings that were of interest to legal people, and 
um, and just changed a couple words so that it wasn't, uh, it was a standalone rather than part of a, of a book. We got Roland Hegstead in and uh, sent them Liberty Magazine with a letter. We did uh, home school. We were the first Seventh-day Adventist church to invite Raymond Moore to speak in the church on a Sabbath morning. Out of that, we got some wonderful families um, for the Lord. Um, my wife and I were the only Seventh-day Adventists in uh, Bill Gothard's Advanced Training Institute, um, ATI. Um, and I went to, as a result of this, I went on a physician's retreat to Michigan. We met with other physicians and uh, in making a friend, uh, there was out of that a physician that was baptized. Um, uh, you can read the story. He wrote it. He's now dead, died of pancreatic cancer, One Man's Leap of Faith. If you've seen that book, it tells the story. There was a physician that I uh, had to tell uh, that he had Lou Gehrig's disease. And um, he was known as a, a uh, very much of a Christian, evangelical Christian physician in the community. And I wanted to know how could I reach him. I realized that I couldn't reach him by in, inviting myself, inviting him to a Bible study that I was doing. But he was part of the Navigators. And, and so I asked him, Navigators, if you're familiar with them, they teach how to memorize Scripture and the importance of Bible memorization, those sorts of things. And so as a result of uh, that, we, um, I invited, since I knew I couldn't invite him to come to our house to give a study to him, I invited him to come to our house to give a study to my children on how to memorize the Bible. So wherever possible, connect with others uh, in reforms that you're interested in. So he came over and gave a two-hour study to the children on the importance of Scripture memorization. It's very good. And uh, as a result of that, guess what he did in turn? He invited me to be part of his navigator group where he was studying through the Bible. And week by week I went and he led out. And um, as a result of that, there was a family, a navigator family that had been uh, going to the program that we were able to have baptized in the church. Um, in providing programs for leaders, don't forget health outreach. The way we reached the Navigator family is, uh, was through the CHIP program. We were doing the very first CHIP program actually ever. It, it kind of started for CHIP for Churches, uh, um, basically was spearheaded in Wichita. And in that very first one that we were doing, well, I should say it was uh, Yolanda Lehman in uh, Battle Creek and then came to uh, uh, Wichita. In that, Robert Freeman, who was part of the navigator group that uh, I was attending week by week of various business people, his wife had just had a stroke, and so in an effort to help his wife, he brought her to the CHIP program. But as we did his blood work, we discovered that he was... 
um, in terrible shape. He was smoking. He had a cholesterol of 437, and he had triglycerides that we couldn't measure. He had already had one heart attack. So in reaching for the wife, we had the husband and studied week by week, and ultimately he and his wife, Jerry, were baptized. Um, in the creation program, which we did in our home, there was a minister that stayed around after the other ministers left. And he said, by the way, Phil, what church do you go to? And I thought he was probably, um, he thought I was probably at first free evangelical or one of those churches. And I told him, I said, um, I, I want to be humble, but it's hard not to sound proud when you're a Seventh-day Adventist. You know, I sort of <laughs> did it offhand, smiled. And he looked at me, and he said, come out to my car. Again, they will not talk when there's others around, and there were other ministers. So I went out to his car, and he says, I've, I've wanted to meet a Seventh-day Adventist. He says, I was over last year. He was head of the Baptist convention that had to do with missions. So that would be like the general conference coordinator of missions in the Adventist church. That's what, what he was in the Baptist, Southern Baptist church. Plus he was pastor of a very large church in Wichita. So he says, we were driving around, and as we went by one house, the missionary I was with pointed that to that house and said, a Seventh-day Adventist lives there. They're our closest friends. And this Baptist man looked at his missionaries and said, how, you know, in his mind, how could that be? And so he wanted to know more about Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, maybe they weren't as far from Southern Baptist as he, he thought. Over time, um, we became good friends. He would, uh, we'd study together every week and... Um, one day, he developed back problems. I had to put him in the hospital to take care of a disc problem. We, uh, and he asked me, he says, Phil, he says, have you ever heard of Ministry Magazine? Of course, I knew of Ministry Magazine. He said, in Ministry Magazine, he said, the last magazine had, had uh, an article about a book called The 27 Beliefs of Seventh-day Adventists. It was actually written by... Um, uh, McNulty's wife, uh, was, yeah, her, yeah, her dad, um, Gerard Domstein. And he said, I thought that the magazine was the book, but then I saw it was just telling about the book. He says, do you know uh, whether, where I could get that book? Well, it so happened that my wife's birthday had been just two days before, and her parents had given her that book. So I said, you know, we have an extra one. And so the next, uh, that evening, I came back, I went home and uh, brought it back to uh, give to this uh, minister. I had it, I told him I was giving it in a, a discreet brown paper bag. And he said, took it out and he says, no, he says, just leave it up here. Here are all his parishioners, a big pastor, big church, his parishioners coming in to, to see it. 
So I told him, I said, so, you know, this chapter, I said, I hope you read this chapter on the Word of God. You will really like it. And I said, this chapter on baptism, this is the chapter you'll really want to read. It just, you'll, your heart will thrill and warm with, with uh, these truths, these Baptist truths that Seventh-day Adventists are uh, teaching. And, of course, what I really wanted to tell him was what? <laughs> read something else, but I didn't tell him. The next day, as I came to do rounds early in the morning, I could hardly wait for what he was going to say. And so I listened to his heart and did those things, pretty perfunctory. And then when I was done, I just said, oh, did you have a chance to look at the book? I said, did you read the uh, chapter on baptism? Did you read the chapter on uh, the uh, Bible? He says, no, he says, but I did read the chapter on the Sabbath. You're right about the Sabbath. Now, how do we convince the world? <laughs> um, he and his wife on a trip, we gave him C.D. Brooks' uh, 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 evangelistic series, and he listened to that. He really liked C.D. Brooks. And... Um, um, we had just a, uh, a wonderful time uh, as we grew together. I would, uh, I would avoid talking to him about the Sabbath. He'd try to get me engaged in a conversation on the Sabbath, and I, I just wouldn't take the bait. And finally, one day, he said to me, he says, you know, every Seventh-day Adventist I've ever met always wants to put you in the corner on the Sabbath. He says, whenever I talk to you, you just want to talk about Christ. Are you sure? You're a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, here's, the, here's the key things to remember on, on uh, reaching the professional. First of all, it's time-consuming because you have to stay close to your contacts. Um, you want to invite them to home, um, to Bible studies, and you have to understand the stumbling blocks for leaders. Reaching the professional is like feeding a wild deer. If you want to get a deer eating out of your hand, you must know what makes the deer bolt. Is that right? And you don't move fast, and you give them their choice. You don't bring the food to them. You let them come to the food. They get suspicious. They'll, they'll turn. And if you want to reach the professional, you must know what makes a professional bolt. Ellen White tells us, our growth has been in untried fields generally slow because of, what is the, the problem? Seventh-day Sabbath. There stands a sharp cross directly in the way of every soul who accepts the truth. There are other truths, such as the non-immortality of the soul and the personal coming of Christ and the clouds of heaven to our earth in a short time, but these are not as objectionable as the Sabbath. The, the talk I gave this morning at church... I actually gave that to a group of Baptists. Um, and instead of giving, getting flack on, uh, on uh, the state of the dead that came up, they loved it. They weren't argumentative because it grew out of the story, you understand. And, but these, a non-immortality of the soul, personal coming of Christ in the clouds of heaven, these are not as objectionable as which? the Sabbath. 
Some will conscientiously accept the truth for its own sake because it is Bible truth and they love the path of obedience to all the commandments of God. These objectionable features of our faith will bar the way to many souls who do not wish to be a peculiar people distinct and separate from the world. Therefore, great wisdom is required to be exercised in the matter of how the truth is brought before the people. It is not enough, I repeat, to know the truth. We must know how to present it, and that takes great wisdom. I think of the France, the France literature distribution so, uh, program that was so unwise, and it got the wrath of... Francis I down on all of the, the uh, Protestants, destroyed them. It was the pretext that was needed to launch the terrible persecution of France. Um, my wife and I do my Bible first. Some of you would be familiar with that. That's children's material, Sabbath school material. And so one of the things that we do is make posters. And I got a call this last week from a dear gentleman who wants to take the poster on how the Catholic Church became the apostate church. He wants to blow that up so he can put it behind on his uh, pickup truck as he drives around. <laughs> and so uh, we, he, he's a dear man, wants to please the Lord. So we reasoned through um, what is a good approach on a pickup truck. He just wants to win somebody for the Lord and he's never won a soul. And he doesn't understand that he's making people bolt from him. Just doesn't understand it. Um, and after our talk and our prayer, I, he's going to take a different approach. I'm thankful for that. Grateful for that. In a letter to workers in Sydney, Australia, you should not feel it your duty to introduce arguments upon the Sabbath question as you meet the people. If persons mention the subject, tell them that is not your burden now. And that's what I would tell this pastor at the Baptist church. I knew there was going to be a time, but he wasn't open at that time. He was testing me. And uh, when should we introduce the testing truths? When they surrender heart and mind and will to God, they are then prepared candidly to weigh the evidence in regard to these solemn testing truths. But while we can be premature in our presentation of the Sabbath, we also lose souls by improperty delay. E.J. Wagner in London, England, Ellen White wrote, when persons who are under conviction are not brought to make a decision at the earliest period possible, there is danger that what will happen? The conviction will gradually wear away. Frequently, when a congregation is at the very point where the heart is prepared for the Sabbath question, it is delayed through fear of the consequences. This has been done, and the result has not been good. So Elder Wagner, who understood righteousness by faith, what was his danger? Loughborough, who understood the importance of the law, what was his danger? He didn't approach the, uh, the higher class. E.J. Wagner had to be warned to bring in the Sabbath. It's interesting. Um, caution is needed, but while some of the workers are guarded and make case slowly, if they are not united with them in the work, those who see the necessity of being aggressive, 
very much will be lost, opportunities will pass, and the opening providence of God will not be discerned. That's why there was a balanced team with A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner, like Peter and John. John was, uh, Wagner was more retiring, A.T. Jones was uh, a little more um, aggressive. And so between the two, there was much more balanced presentation. To ministers and members of the then Young Iowa Conference, Ellen White wrote this, when the theory of truth is repeated without its sacred influence being felt upon the soul of the speaker, it is no force upon the hearers, but is rejected as air, the speaker making himself responsible for the loss of souls. You know who she was writing this to? She was writing this to a young minister. And this young minister had been, in many ways, Ellen White said, an exemplary student at uh, the college, Battle Creek College. But he had gone out with another group. They had, uh, he had gone out with a date. Um, and they'd gone off uh, campus, and it was completely forbidden. They shouldn't have done it. It was unwise. And she said he had never repented of it that Iowa Conference should never have invited him to be a pastor. One little sin. Today, we wouldn't even think about that. And yet, that was keeping the force of truth from his preaching. Never had made that sin right. Now, what method should never be employed in trying to reach the higher classes? Letter 77, 1895, formal set phrases, the presentation of merely argumentative subjects is not productive of good. Why not? When something doesn't produce good results, at best it produces no results and usually bad results. Formal set phrases might be true but you have the difference between hail and rain and dew. The dew is water, the rain is water, the hail is water. The coldest is the hail most damaging. Before there was rain in the Garden of Eden, there was only gentle, soft dew. That's what God wants us to do. To be doing. We have been instructed as to what will and won't work. Volume 7, page 38, what, what, what will work? We are to present the truth and the love of God. What will not work? Extravagance or display. And since it won't work, but does waste time and money, no extravagance or display should attend the work. To make our work successful, it is to be done after Christ's order. It is to be carried forward in humility in the simplicity of the gospel. Teach the word. And the Lord, by His Holy Spirit, will send conviction to the hearers. We just teach the Word. Let the Lord convict. To a canvasser, it was so written, it is not worldly wisdom, but God-given wisdom that, reach, that teaches us to present the truth in such a manner that will reach the higher classes. Who do we learn this from? God. Who will, when converted to the truth, exert an influence in its favor and who will help to sustain it with their entrusted talents of influence and means? By reaching the higher classes, we are um, 
uh, working along with God to have the truth exert a widespread influence. Worldly wisdom will say we need elegant furnishings, we need eloquent, elegant dress, but God's wisdom is different. God's wisdom is superior. Men of common sense appreciate comfort above elegance and display. Our work in all its departments should be an illustration, not of display and extravagance, but of sanctified judgment. <clears throat> Did you ever notice that elegant furniture is uh, generally uncomfortable? The designers are focusing on appearance, not comfort. The furniture is to be looked at, not sat in. Comfort attracts those with common sense, and those with common sense are who we want to attract to the kingdom. Pan for gold where gold is. Go after the people with common sense. It is little things that give us access to others or close access to others. It is the little things that determine whether we will reach the professional or whether we will not. We are making a statement by the way we furnish our office, our homes, our churches. We are also making a statement by the way we dress. Christians are not to decorate the person with costly array or expensive ornaments. They are not to do it. We don't decorate our offices, our homes, or our bodies with expensive trinkets that draw attention to ourselves. All this display, she says, imparts no value to the character unless it, it imparts value to the character. It has no added value. It's spending money for that which is not bread. The Lord desires every converted person to put away the idea that dressing as worldlings dress will give value to his influence. Dressing like the world does not help us reach the professional. The next sentence gives immense insight into who we worship. The ornamentation of the person with jewels and luxurious things is a what? Species of idolatry. You will dress to please the one you worship. When we dress like the world, it doesn't increase our ability to reach the professional. It merely signals to others that we worship the same idols they do. It effectively guts our influence. We telegraph a message to the world by the way we dress. If how we dress doesn't make a statement about ourselves, why do we care about it? But it does. And this paragraph then continues giving five important insights about those who dress in this way. Number five first, we'll do it backward. A lack of spirituality is revealed. Since spiritual things are spiritually discerned, I am proclaiming loudly, I am not spiritual, I don't discern spiritual things. An overdressed, outwardly adorned person bears the sign of inward poverty. That's number four. When we focus on the externals, it is always to cover our nakedness. This is true of institutions as well as individuals. Expensive dress and adornments of jewelry give an incorrect representation of the truth that should always be represented as of the highest value. Two, it gives evidence to the world of a heart destitute of the inward adornment. And one, this needless display reveals a love for those things which are supposed to place a value upon the person. But my greatest mistake was in the priorities of my life. I was at work from early morning till night. No child of mine was interested in medicine. 
doctors never saw their children. That was their response. My oldest daughter at the age of 11 was developing a deepening rebellion. And that is very dangerous because the oldest is the leader for the younger. I had some wake-up calls. The pastor gave me a warning, but what did he know? He didn't have children. And after all, I go around giving seminars on how to raise children. I know all about it. And then we had a guest speaker who was a specialist on uh, children raising and uh, children with problems, and he gave me a warning, and that shook me a little bit. And then my wife discovered my oldest daughter's diary, and that shook me to the core. And I realized that I had to make some immediate and dramatic changes in my practice, or I was going to lose my children. My wife, she thought it was probably impossible for me to uh, change. She thought it was impossible, and she was amazed how step by step I disentangled myself. I had to, by the grace of God. This was a huge, uh, only God could have given me uh, grace to disentangle myself from uh, various responsibilities. Took me two years to disentangle myself from the various responsibilities, including being medical director of a hospital. And over that two-year time, our oldest daughter, Rachel, made a full commitment to the Lord. We saw how the Lord worked with us in reaching her. And then she began to work for her brother and her sister. Years later, she's now married, just finishing up her pediatric residency with her husband, who's doing a surgery residency, and they helped found Advent Hope. <laughs> Both are active in giving Bible studies and seeking to advance the God's cause. Tonight, in fact, I want to remember this in prayer. Philip is in his first, our son, is in his first evangelistic meetings. Last night, he preached the Sabbath for the first time. Um, he's just finished the change of the Sabbath, the history, um, this evening, and he preached at church, invited them to attend the church. And our youngest daughter is at Washita Hills. Actually, she's at home. She surprised my wife. Washita Hills look, working for her elementary school degree. Thank the Lord. You see, in reaching the professional, we must not forget to reach the future professionals. If we will open our hearts and homes to the divine principles of life, we shall become channels for currents of life-giving power. From our homes will flow streams of healing, bringing life and beauty and fruitfulness, where now are barrenness and dearth. I think of how with Rachel and joined by Eric, Wichita State University outreach was uh, done. And at one time, we were studying with the president of the Honor Society, the uh, vice president of the Honor Society, the uh, uh, treasurer, wasn't the treasurer of the Honor Society, and uh, the activities uh, director, and Curtis Farnham was the president of the Honor Society came out of that outreach of uh, the youth 
on Wichita State University. Dear folk, again, we're looking at reaching the future professional. Ellen White says in Ministry of Healing 493, no, God says, through Ellen White, regard yourselves as missionaries first of all among your fellow workers. You see, our mission field is ourself, our family, and our associates. Our first mission field, a review again, is to see that we have accepted Christ. Then we work for our family and associates, those that are closest, those who are nearest and dearest. The intelligent, the refined are altogether too much passed by. When Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, the Levite and the priest passed the injured Jew by. But that is an illustration of how we pass by the starving upper class. Satan has beaten the intelligent and the refined, left them by the road half dead, and we pass them by. The hook is not baited to catch this class. We're not even trying to catch these fish. We're fishing for a different kind of fish. Ways and methods are not prayerfully devised to reach them with truth that is able to make them wise unto salvation. Most generally, the wealthy, the proud, understand by experience that happiness is not to be secured by the amount of money they possess or by costly edifices and ornamental furniture and pictures. They want something they have not. But this class are attracted toward each other and it is hard to find access to them. And because of this, many are perishing in their sins who long for something that will give them rest and peace and quietude of mind. They need Jesus, the light of righteousness. There's a certain round of labor performed in a certain way that leaves a large class untouched. The rich left alone without any effort to save them become shut up more and more to their own ideas. Their own train of thoughts and associations lose eternity out of their reckoning. They grow more proud and selfish, hard-hearted and unimpressible, suspicious that everyone wants to get money, while the poor envious of the rich who need pity rather than to be envied. Bring these all poor and rich, under the power of saving truth. And the work of upbuilding the kingdom of God will go forward with much greater success. And there will be men who have means, who will discern something of the character of the work, although they have not the courage to lift the cross and to bear the reproach that attends unpopular truth. First, reach the high classes if possible. But read it with me but there should be no neglect of the lower classes. No neglect of any class. Now, I told you about uh, Steve, the attorney, who for two years we worked with him. And uh, he just would not make his decision because his wife, Vonda, would have given him a hard time. And he... Uh, he would still come to the office. I'd still see him, but I had said everything I could say. I didn't have anything further to say. Three years passed, and of course you know the story. Vani, um, his wife, divorced him. So I approached him again. I said, you know, Steve, 
you told me that it was your wife that keeping your family together that kept you from deciding for the Lord. I warned you that that would not keep your marriage together. And uh, I said, now she's gone, and God has given you an opportunity to prove whether it was your wife or, or not as to whether you'd accept the truth. And I made a strong appeal for him to give his heart to the Lord, but he still wouldn't. You see, it wasn't his wife. That was an excuse. Time passed. Nine years passed, then 14. And I was now studying with the partner of the, of the Kansas, the person who had become the Kansas senator, Michael um, Harris, that I'd shown you your picture, studying now with his partner. He had long ago moved away. And uh, so I said to Steve, I said, why don't you start coming to our Bible studies? I'm studying with this lawyer. We're getting some lawyers together. Why don't you come join our study? And he said, I'd like to do that. And then he told me, he says, every day for the last 14 years, every day I've been miserable, knowing, knowing that I wasn't obedient to God, knowing the truth. I've been miserable. I said, well, Steve, let me help you be unmiserable. He'd since married, remarried. And so uh, he started coming. And six months later, we were ready for the appeal. And uh, so I had him come into the office because I wanted to talk to him privately, personally, make the appeal. At this time, he must make the decision. And uh, he called up to schedule an appointment with me in the office, actually. And so, um, so he said, uh, I said to him, uh, Steve, I want you to sit down because I want to tell you what you're going to talk to me about, and then I'm going to tell you why I know what you're going to tell me. So he was kind of shocked by that, and he sat down. And I said, here's what you're going to tell me. This is a, a Tuesday. Tuesday. I said, here's what you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me, Phil, I can't make the decision because if I did, my wife would divorce me. And I said, here's why I know that. And he, he smiled. I said, here's how I know that. Because God brings us over the same ground where we failed before, makes the test harder the next time, but he's giving us an opportunity to make it right. And he just shook his head. He says, you know, he says, that's what I was going to tell you. <laughs> and I made an appeal. I said, Steve, you must talk to your wife and tell her that you're making the commitment to the Lord. Be a leader in your home. Be brave. And so we prayed, and he prayed a prayer of commitment. And the next morning, 
Early in the morning, he gave me a call. He said, Phil, he says, I talked to my wife. And I says, you know, I have been unhappy for 14 years knowing I should keep the Sabbath. And she, he says, I was so amazed. My wife sat up in bed and she looked at me and she says, well, Steve, why don't you keep it? <laughs> and he did. Are you willing to begin praying to be a witness? Are you willing to look for opportunities to share what Jesus has done for you? Are you willing to invite people to study the Bible with you? Are you willing to carefully devise plans for personal outreach to the neglected professionals so that all classes may hear the gospel invitation? C.D. Brooks put it this way. We need to be like a cat around a birdcage with one question, how do I get at him? Shall we bow our heads? Father in heaven, we've looked at reaching the unreached professional. I pray that as we seek to reach others for you. You will reach ourselves with yourself. In our effort to bring warmth to others, you will give us your warmth. Lord, I pray for Philip's evangelistic series going on, been finished tonight, those that are in the valley of decision. I pray for each person that you've brought into um, our sphere of influence, each person here who has people that are in their sphere of influence. I pray that you'll give them wisdom as they surrender to you, wisdom to know how to lovingly, gently, cheerfully, positively, reach others for Jesus. Forgive us for our mistakes. We've done it so badly. <laughs> but teach us how to do it day by day in your school. We're thankful you don't upbraid us. You just give us um, greater wisdom as we listen to your voice. Lord, we just commit our lives to you in Christ's name. Amen.